Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. You can find our latest news coverage at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T dot O-R-G. And I'm joined today by the Indies Associate Editor, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here today with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have another amazing show for you tonight. In the first half of uh, tonight's show, we w- we're going to look at the City University of New York. A recent spate of budget cuts and faculty firings at Queens College have stoked concerns that a devastating new wave of austerity could sweep across CUNY, the largest urban higher education system in the country. And later in the show, we're going to check in with our friends at the Earth Church. The Earth Church is a radical theater space housed in a former bank building in the East Village. It is home to Reverend Billy and the Church's Stop Shopping Choir. But now it's also a welcoming center for hundreds of migrants who have been denied essential city services and part of a broader community mobilization in the East Village to aid desperate migrants. We will also have a Gaza update from Amba near the bottom of the hour. But first, we turn to the City University of New York. It has been a bastion of affordable, higher quali- high-quality public education for poor, working-class, and immigrant students for more than 150 years here in New York. It currently serves more than 225,000 undergraduates at 18 campuses across all f- five boroughs, and it also has seven graduate school campuses as well. The winter semester began at most campuses on Thursday. At Queens College, the semester began on Thursday with a protest in the heart of the Queens College campus. Students and faculty were outraged by the surprise firing of 26 full-time faculty over the winter break. This is Queens College student Brandon King talking about the impact of the firing on students like him. Hey, student, um, gra- graduate student here at Queens College um, in the arts department. It's, uh, it's quite alarming uh, to come back on campus and find out that 26 of our professors, of our faculty have been um, asked. You know, like, I came here because Queens College has um, a very robust, like, arts department and sculpture department. And it's, um, and they're the only place in Queens where you can do bronze casting. And it's crazy that that person that was holding that down has been fired. So it's just, like, the things that this institution offers, um, not being able to uphold that because of the austerity of because of, you know, the folks that um, are in power figuring they have to like like uh, do this enclosure and, and pour resources and, and leave us out to dry you know I think the thing for me I'm, I'm like you know they want us to speak positively about these institutions it's a city institution these Queens College I know people that used to go like went here for free like back in the day and just the ways that the um that the prices have risen, you know, that they make people pay for an education. It's a cycle that, that has us more and more um, on the short end of the stick. Um, and I feel like being a part of this fight is is a fight for our survival, a fight for our education, um, a fight for our, our like dignity and humanity. That, that was Queens College student Brandon King speaking to the Independence Lane Dibbler. Now, CUNY is... Uh, 
been under uh, increasing financial strain in recent years. And joining us now to talk about uh, what's happening at Queens College and at CUNY more broadly are Ash Marinaccio. She is one of the 26 fired professors. And Karen Weingarten, professor of English at Queens College. Karen is also the chapter chair at her campus for the Professional Staff Congress of CUNY, the union that represents 30,000 faculty and staff at the City University of New York. Welcome, both of you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, so, Ash, let's start with you. Uh, you had a full-time teaching appointment at Queens College, and then short, I believe shortly after New Year's, you learned you had lost your job. Uh, can you talk about how that went down and how it's I, impacted your life? I did, yes. I was a full-time substitute um a full-time substitute professor in media studies at Queens College. And um, about two weeks before the semester ended, they um, they renewed my contract. So I was supposed to be there for another full year um, in the same line. And we were, you know, we had big plans for the semester or for the, for the next year. Everything was going well. My classes are um, over-tallied with long wait lists. And about two weeks, this is exactly two weeks before the semester started, um, I got a text from the chair of my department. She was like, can you talk? And, um, you know, I knew, I knew it wasn't, it was it couldn't have been a good thing. Um, and she called and she was practically in tears and was like, you know, I just wanted to tell you that um, this, this, um, this is all going down and you're going to get a letter next week saying that um, you no longer have a job and um, all of these professors have been fired and we're trying to fight it. And, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty hard phone call. Right. Right. And, 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 and what, what, how, 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 how have you, you uh, uh, adjusted, adjusted to this situation? situation? Um, well, I, I, I mean, I'm in a, um, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'm in a, um, rather a, a bit of a privileged position, um, compared to some of my colleagues because I'm still a graduate student at the CUNY Graduate Center. I'm completing my PhD this semester. So, um, I contacted, um, some of, uh, my colleagues at um, the CUNY Graduate Center in some of the um, Office of Student Support, and um, they found me placement as a graduate um, assistant, as a graduate fellow, gave me a f- graduate fellowship. So I was able to continue. Um, I was able to be employed and keep health insurance this semester. Um, but my classes, um, my classes at Queens, I became an adjunct. So, you know, it's unfortunately it's the same. It's the same amount of work, but um you know, for a stipend. So it's, it's, um, pretty, that that's pretty terrible, but, um, I really, it was really important to me to be able to finish with my students. I've had students, um, you know, that I've had for, uh, four or five semesters who, you know, we were continuing working together and, um, you know, I, it was really important for me to be there with them. And, um, you know, if it means that I'm adjuncting this semester, I, I, I'm here for the students, and um, that was that was what I was going to do. Right, right, and and Karen, and Karen what has been the reaction by students and faculty at Queens College um, to the firings? Yeah, I mean, I think the students and the faculty are all shocked. I uh, shortly after this happened, my email inbox was just bombarded by uh, just people who were just 
shocked and incredibly upset. I got emails from chairs. I got emails from the many of the impacted faculty members. And I, you know, I've been teaching at Queens College since 2006, and I can't remember another time when so many people were fired at like two weeks before this, the end of the semester. I think that was partially uh, one of the shocking things that it happened so cl- close to the start of the semester that it was so disruptive for these 26 people's lives, but also for their departments who in many cases had to scramble to find other people to teach these classes, to cancel classes, and then find other sections for the students. Um, so people were really reeling. It was incredibly upsetting. I have students that can't graduate um, because some of the classes were cut. I have students who, um, you know, my classes, they're supposed to have um, maybe about 15 people in them. And now, you know, there's 30 people in them and the wait lists are 10, 10 students deep. Um, It's a significant impact on the student population. Um, you know, and the students are rightfully upset and distressed and concerned about what this means for their future. Right. That can change your whole plans. Um, and what do you all make of the administration's explanation that they had to reduce the college's deficit? So the we wrote an open letter to our president and also to the chancellor and the chancellor has two lines, right? The first is what you actually just said right now, Amba. He said there's a structural deficit. And what that, what they mean by that is that the enrollment at Queens College is less than what they had anticipated. And so they want to make these cuts so that the operating budget of the college is in line with its actual student enrollment. But both the chancellor and our own administration acknowledge that the real reason we're in this crisis, this financial crisis, is because of decades of underfunding by the state of New York. Queens College is a senior college, and all senior colleges in CUNY are actually funded by New York State, not by New York City. People sometimes find that confusing because we're the city university, um, but we are funded by New York State. And for decades, New York State has not kept up with the operating college costs of running the senior colleges. And that means when people get step raises or sometimes even contractual raises, when energy costs go up every year, energy costs are going up. The state is not, is not making up for that cost by raising what they're giving CUNY. And so as a result, the university has to use its existing budget to meet the rising operating costs. And when this happens year after year after year, you get a situation where we're running on bare bone budgets. And that is ultimately also explains why 50% of our faculty or 50% of our classes are taught by part-time faculty. Um, we are running a university based on the backs of people who are not making a living wage. And as Ash just explained, she went from having a full-time salary with benefits where she was making a living wage to now teaching as an adjunct. And adjunct wages do not allow people to lit, to, to meet the cost of living in New York City. And so that is really, um, one of the consequences of 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 these cuts and and the way in which um, the state runs the city university, right, right. If, if we can, if just we can just delve, delve into, into that, that a little further, further uh, Karen. Uh, uh, 
you talk about, talk the, about situation the situation just with, just the, with lack the lack of, of uh, support staff that students need, need like, like counselors, uh, uh, people in financial aid department, all those kind of positions, uh, positions uh, that provide an anchor for the students and, and how how that, that may also, also contribute to, to uh, uh, declining, declining or stagnant, or stagnant enrollment. enrollment. Yeah. So in addition, so one of the things that I find really ironic is the is you know CUNY is telling Queens College cut 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 and you know because your enrollment is down and then at the same time our enrollment is actually the number of freshmen who are entering Queens College has not really gone down significantly. One of our biggest issues is is um, is retaining students. Students leave Queens College and the provost in a meeting I was with I was in a meeting just like last week she admitted. After their second year, students in their in their second and third year tend to like that's where we have a problem. We have a problem retaining students and their college is like, we need to figure out why. But if you talk to students, they will tell you there are not enough academic advisors teaching at Queens College or working at Queens College. Rather, um, we currently don't have a director of counseling services. We don't have a registrar at the moment. We don't have a director of graduate admissions. And students tell me stories like they try to make appointments with financial aid and uh, financial aid counselors don't show up to appointments. And when you talk to people in these offices, they all tell you our workload is staggering. Like people leave and we don't have people replacing them. And so it's not surprising to me that we have a problem retaining students because when you are, you can't, when you're running the a college with this bare bones budget, when you don't, when you have a hiring freeze that doesn't allow you to hire a registrar, doesn't allow you to hire a director of graduate admissions, then yes, students are going to feel that and they're going to say, I'm going to drop out. This is, this is not worth my time or they're going to transfer, right? To other colleges, other universities where they don't have this experience, where they feel like they're valued as students and they can get the support they need to, to succeed as students. And can you talk about uh, the upcoming budget season here in New York? Is it possible like that CUNY could get uh, better, fun- better and more funding? Yeah, I mean, it's always possible, right? Our, the PSC, our union, uh, has been long been pushing for a fully funded CUNY. Uh, they are part of what's called the CUNY Rising Alliance, which has a vision for CUNY that increases CUNY's budget uh, so that uh, it we are finally funding things like more counselors, more advisors, more full-time faculty. Uh, we would love to see uh, um Hokel, our, our governor, actually create a budget plan that that fully funds the university. But I think in order to do that, it can't just be the PSC pushing this agenda. We need our chancellor. We need the CUNY Board of Trustees. We need the CUNY presidents up there lobbying for a fully funded CUNY. And right now, I don't see that happening. Right. And, and we can also just pivot a little bit to a bigger picture here. Uh, can, can you talk about uh, concerns uh, that these these kind of measures that were taken at Queens College will be replicated at other CUNY campuses? I mean, I think they already are. Um, like York College, uh, which is a senior college in Jamaica, Queens, so not not too far from Queens College, 
in some ways, their situation is even worse than at Brooklyn, than at Queens College. Uh, York has been asked to slash their budget by a third. Wow. So it's it's been yeah, it's been they've had to cut hundreds and hundreds of sections. They've cut many, many part time faculty. Brooklyn College has similarly seen really, right. really deep cuts. Um, and the concern is that this will be happening at other on other campuses, too. Right. Uh, City Tech, uh, the College of Staten Island. Um, yeah. So I don't it, it's it's definitely not only a concern at Queens or at York, but so far, Queens made this very dramatic move to to fire 26 full-timers, uh, which was kind of unprecedented. Um, we can see that also at the Graduate Center, where we have um, retiring faculty and they're not being replaced. And faculty who retired years ago, they're not being replaced. And, um, you know, there are these openings and they can't even do a job search. That happened actually at Queens last semester, where... Um, you know, they I, I guess they had opened the job line, um, a, a line that was open. And then the school, um, I, I believe that the school didn't file the paperwork in in time and the line got canceled. So, um, you know, this is something that's happening um, you know, throughout the CUNY system. And it, and it's it's by design. I mean, the policy right now, CUNY has told all the colleges that for every three people who leave or retire, they can only hire one person. And so colleges have to make these hard decisions like three people leave. So are we going to hire a registrar or are we going to hire a director of counseling? Are we going to hire, you know, someone to teach a full timer to teach in the sculpture program? Or are we going to hire a media studies professor? And all of these have different needs and and some of them are equally urgent and and they have to make some incredibly difficult and I think it's unnecessarily difficult right all of these positions should be replaced because our students need them and how does what's happening in at CUNY replicate what's happening elsewhere um, within the city and then of course even within the country in the larger sort of you know uh, educational institutional bases somewhat crumbling hey, Karen you want to run with that sure I can answer that question I didn't know if Ash wanted to I mean I I, I would I say mean, both can but uh, yeah, maybe Karen if you want to start yeah I mean I'll, I'll answer the second part of your question I think what we're seeing right now is an attack on higher education across the country there's definitely this conservative reaction response to higher education um, and it's you know part of this anti-intellectual movement across the United States and what I actually see happening is a kind of return to this moment where institutions like CUNY, which, as John said in his opening, really have historically provided higher education for working class, for poor students, for students of color. We have to remember that CUNY now is majority students of color. Um, and you know, as we see less and less support for public universities, for public higher ed, uh, like in, like, like CUNY, I worry that, um, like a well-funded, um, you know, higher educational experience is something that only a small elite number of students will, 
will will have. Um, and so I I definitely see the attack on CUNY as an attack that is connected to all kinds to, to a loss of all kinds of services, both in the city, right? Like the cutting the gutting of library services, of K through twelve education, of other kinds of critical services for people in New York City, but also across the country. Um, and it's basically telling people like you don't deserve to have a quality higher education. Uh, that that's that's affordable, right? CUNY is still relatively affordable compared to many many other um, universities, and and of course the cost of attending a private university in the U.S. is just rising with every year. Exactly, and to um, you know to also piggyback on that um, from the perspective of being a faculty member. Um, the adjunctification of, um, of the university has been going on since the, since the 90s. And we're seeing now, you know, as somebody who's just at the end of a PhD program and, um, you know, looking to go into a full time line, um, you know, and, and you're told kind of you need to adjunct for a few years to play the game. And the only people who are able to do that because the wages are so low and there's no benefits um, are people who are already independently wealthy or connected. So right. um, you're getting a body of faculty members of brilliant, brilliant, um, brilliant people who can't who can't even teach, who can't even um, participate in um, in shaping the minds of students because um, there's no pay and there's no benefits. It becomes something that right now I'm subsidizing my teaching work with another job. I couldn't have continued to adjunct if I didn't have the other job at CUNY. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like you're, you know, you're doing work. Um, you're doing work to be able to subsidize the work, um, the teaching. Right. And that's horrifying. Right. Working one job to pay for the other. Um, yeah. Uh, before we have to go here in a couple of minutes, uh, something else I want to uh, bring up, uh, uh, Karen, is uh, uh, something called RPK Consulting. Uh, this is mm. a, uh, a firm that uh, helps uh, u- helps <laughs> universities uh, uh, downsize uh, their uh, their departments and uh, probably gut the, uh, their departments is probably more accurate. And uh, they played a a, a large role in really the gutting of the humanities uh, at West Virginia University last year. And then I think you're familiar with another place they operated, which was at, at uh, Jersey City uh, uh, University, uh, which went through this process. And uh, in the in the past six months or so, it came to light that uh, RPK claimed it had a, 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 work, a relationship with CUNY, that CUNY was one of its clients. CUNY <coughs> denies it. <laughs> But uh, can you talk a little bit more about uh, RPK and especially what uh, happened right across the river in Jersey City and why so many people are alarmed by the apparent relationship between CUNY and RPK? Yeah, so I, I am familiar with what happened at um, at Jersey City University uh, because my partner teaches there. It's a very similar university to CUNY in a lot of ways. It also has um, a working class, primarily student of color population. And uh, NJCU, as it's called, contracted with RPK. RPK created this report. And sure enough, not that long after, their president quit unexpectedly. 
and uh, and NJCU ended up making an announcement that because of their fiscal crisis, they would close several uni- several departments, and they fired um, many many tenured tenure track and adjunct faculty members. And because they were closing departments, they shut down the economics department, the physics department, um, the ESL department, and it allowed them to fire. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but dozens of, of full-time faculty members, uh, who lost their job. Um, and it was, it was pretty shocking, um, given how difficult it is, uh, to find a, a new full-time job, a new full-time tenure track job, uh, especially once you've been tenured somewhere. Uh, so it is really concerning, uh, if to hear that CUNY might have con, have been working with RPK, like you said, John, they deny it. So I have no evidence that 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 RPK has issued a similar report to CUNY. But regardless, we have been getting um, information from our from the university provost. CUNY just recently issued this report to New York State about their budget, saying that because of this budget crisis, because of the so-called structural deficit, they will be looking to combine programs, cut programs. They basically want to... Um, you know, start reshaping the university to be more fiscally responsible. And of course, for them, that does mean firing and often firing, uh, you know, people that they think are, you know, not necessary to the university's mission. And of course, at the same time, they're doing this by expanding CUNY online. And they just, it was just in the news that CUNY received a $75 million donation, the largest donation ever. But of course, it's going towards um, developing an AI and artificial intelligence program. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really that concerned about to, CUNY Central's uh, vision for diversity. Yes, robots. Exactly. <laughs> we'll all be replaced by robots <laughs> and then they won't need to pay us. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we'll have to go here in a sec, but of course, something we didn't have a chance to explore is how many bloated high-level administrative positions there are um, yes. at CUNY and uh, so many other campuses in this country. The, the people that do the firing, of course, make sure they uh, get well-paid themselves. Um, but yeah. we'll have to leave it for now. But uh, thank you so much, both Karen Weingarten, professor of English at Queens College and Queens College chapter chair for her union there, and Ash Marinaccio, old friend of the Independent, uh, thank you for also joining us, and uh, wish you the best, both of you, with this uh, new semester. Thank you oh, so much for having us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. We'll be thank back uh, after a short break with a Gaza update from AMBA, and then a little later we'll be talking uh, with Sabatri D. from the Earth Church. <laughs>
That was El Quds Al Atika or Jerusalem in My Heart by Firuz and the Rabani Brothers. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York City. I'm your host, John Tarleton. Uh, and um, uh, we're going to have a Gaza update in one moment. Just want to let people know that it's your support that keeps this station going. We're going to talk more about how you can give and help support this station. Um, but please be ready for that. We we need all hands on deck to uh, continue broadcasting here at WBAI. But the big story we're continuing to follow is uh, the Israeli assault on Gaza and the fate of more than 2 million people who are trapped in the Gaza Strip enduring uh, this genocidal war that's taking place there. Uh, my colleague Amit Bagarian has been following all of this closely, including Arab language news sources that she's able to monitor. Uh, Amba, what do you have for us tonight? Uh, only to a certain extent. I still use Google Translate. I just have the ends. Um, so, right, I'm going to go right into it. Updates on Gaza from uh, the Middle East to here in New York City. Uh, so far, 15 to 30,000 Gazans have been killed by Israeli forces since October 7th in Gaza. That number depends on whether you count uh, many of those stuck under the rubble uh, dead. All of the safe zones in south of Gaza have changed, and uh, people currently uh, have been evacuated into hospitals uh, uh, you know, in the past couple of weeks that were then attacked. Um, there's too many to list. On the ground in Gaza, updates uh, uh, coming from reporter Bisan Oda via her Instagram page, Wizard Bisan. Today, she said, in the south of Gaza Strip, a seven-year-old girl named Lyon has been surrounded by occupation snipers since yesterday in a car with six members of her family who were all killed by the snipers. While we know that she is alive and besieged because she spoke to the Red Crescent Ambulance and asking for their help, the Israeli army prevents her from reaching the girl. So, On Friday, the International Court of Justice released a ruling on South Africa's case against Israel for committing genocide in Gaza. It said that there is a plausible cause that Israel is purporting genocide in Gaza and ruled that Israeli leaders must stop killing civilians and allow access to aid for the Gazans, but did not specifically call for a ceasefire, which was one of South Africa's requests. Then on Monday, the UN's highest court also accepted to hear South Africa's case against Israel. And that same day, yesterday, Israel accused 12 employees with the UN's Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNWA, of taking part in the Hamas attack on October 7th. The United States and at least 10 other nations immediately suspended funding to the agency, which has a staff of over 13,000 and has provided a Essential aid to most of Gaza's 2.3 million residents since long before this violence. UNRWA said on Monday it would not be able to continue operations in Gaza and across the region beyond the end of February if funding were not resumed. It can be noted that during a discussion on the Israeli par- at the Israeli parliament on January 4th, Noga Arbel, a former official of the Israeli foreign ministry, said it will be impossible to win the war if we do not destroy UNRWA and this destruction must begin immediately. And Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said there will be no UNWA in post-war Gaza. And yesterday, the Pentagon accused... There's been a lot of news these past few days. Yesterday, the Pentagon accused Iranian-backed militants of killing three U.S. soldiers in a drone strike at a base in Jordan along the Syrian border, making the troops the first U.S. armed forces killed by enemy fire in the region since October 7th. This comes after various strategic bombings in Syria, Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, Yemen, and Pakistan. 
Rami Khoury, Palestinian-American journalist, spoke yesterday on Democracy Now! about the mindset of some of these groups that Western colonial powers have been attacking. We're going to listen to him. It's okay. Okay. People who did this attack, the Americans blame a certain group in uh, Iraq uh, funded or backed by Iran. There's dozens of these groups all over uh, the region. Uh, There's almost as many of these groups around the region as there are American military bases around the region. I think there's something like 30 or 35 American military bases with something like 30, 40,000 troops. And, of course, when you add them, ones that come in on the aircraft carriers, uh, it's more than that. So what you have to see this, you have to see this in the context of a regional situation with many American military installations, some of them killing and attacking Arabs and others, some of them are not. And you have to see the groups from uh, Arab countries, official state groups and uh, non-state actors like Hezbollah and Hamas and Ansarullah. That's the context in which we have to uh, to see this. There are so many potential people who could have done this attack, uh, uh, which should make us wonder about why are there so many people who are potential attackers. Uh, it's because they see the American presence link very close to what Israel is doing in Palestine. They see this as a threat, and they come right out and say it. They've said it so many times. We're not scared of being attacked. We're not um, um, put off by the U.S. and um, and Israeli threats. We're defending our our territory, and if we're aggressed against, we're going to fight back. And the the Ansarullah in in Yemen and others have said, look, if the U.S. stops actively supporting the genocidal um, savage moves of Israel and Gaza, uh, we will uh, stop attacking American uh, targets. By the way, I know that area in northeastern Jordan quite well. I spent uh, uh, many, many days there years ago, and I was writing books on archaeology, and I lived in Jordan. And there's two things I think people should recognize about this area. Uh, First of all, if you look at that aerial uh, photograph, which uh, you showed, uh, of the camp, uh, Tower 2, I think it's called, if you look at that photograph, then you go back into the archaeological uh, journals and look at pictures, aerial photographs of Roman and Byzantine camps that archaeologists have mapped in surveys, you find exactly the same thing. And this is a sign that these kinds of foreign military installations inside the region, especially on peripheral border areas, that don't have a long lifestyle. Uh, and they uh, will be abandoned because the local people don't want them there. All right, that was Rami Khoury, Palestinian-American journalist, speaking on Democracy Now! yesterday. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to include a little bit of the history there because it, the the region that we've been talking about, you know, is really, really rich in history, uh, as are most. But um, here in in New York, you know, there have been protests uh, ongoing since October 7th for uh, free Palestine and, and a ceasefire in Gaza, as have there been in major cities all around the world up until through, you know, today. Um, and on Friday, the co-founder of the Brooklyn-based group within our lifetime Palestine, Nardine Kiswani, 
and other protest organizers were arrested for using a speakerphone, which is what they always do, just for the record, um, at their protests and aren't usually arrested for, at a Midtown protest denouncing APAC and the Israeli arms manufacturer Albit. This is the first time that Kaswani, who is a relatively well-known figure, has been arrested during the protest since October 7th. And just the day before that, Within Our Lifetime released a report titled The Crackdown on Palestine, Unveiling NYPD's Repression Tactics. And you can read that online at wolpalestine.com backslash resist repression. Nardine said in an Instagram post after that Friday incident, for all of those asking if I'm okay, of course I am. As long as I fight for my people and I have my people out here on the streets continuing to speak out against this genocide, I am okay. It is an honor to, it is an honor to play, pay the price of fighting against the genocide of my people, my family, my loved ones. My people resist everywhere we go with everything we have. We resist them. This is what we do. There has never been resistance without a cost. Try to silence me again and it'll only make me louder. So she has received multiple death threats and, and rape threats for her activism. And that is all I have. Amba Gergarian reporting live. <laughs> yeah, great work, Amba. Thank you for uh, keeping track of so many threads of what's going on with the, the war in Gaza, the protests uh, back here in New York and elsewhere. I, I just have to say real quick with that uh, unrest story, uh, the UN Relief Agency uh it's really shocking. I mean, and if you think this agency that has 13,000 employees that help feed, feed and keep alive many of Gaza's 2 million residents uh, is, is essentially uh, at risk of being defunded here because allegedly 12 of its employees were, did, were involved in the Hamas action on October 7th. And keep in mind, that's coming from Israel, and that's just what they say. But – even if it were true, you got twelve people out of thirteen thousand, and you're going to defund the whole, the whole thing, pretty much. Uh, I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, the powers that be in this country uh, pulling the plug on a police department if you ha- if they found a dozen bad cops and being well, like, they well, don't. They, well, they, you don't have to got, imagine it because they don't. And uh, and really, any other government agency. I mean, heck. You know, if, if you found out in, there were 12 corrupt congressmen, uh, would you close down Capitol Hill? I mean, probably not. Um, they, they certainly wouldn't do that to themselves. They don't, <laughs> again. <laughs> so, and, and it all, it's just the cruelty of it is mind-boggling. It also made me think of a famous comment attributed to Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian independence leader, uh, where he was once asked by a, Western, uh, by a reporter, uh, uh, what do you think of Western civilization? And he uh, said, I think that would be a, a, a good idea. Um, yeah, there you go. But uh, yep. uh, um, anyway, uh, again, thank you for that report. And, uh, you know, we just want to ask our, re- uh, our listeners here, uh, please uh, step up uh, uh, this evening if you can to help uh, fund WBAI, keep this one-of-a-kind radio station on the air, 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give number 2, WBAI.org. You can pull out the plastic, fill out the uh, the form. And, and the, the very best thing you could do is become a WBAI buddy. For as little as $10 a month, you get all sorts of excellent uh, benefits that uh, go with that, as well as the satisfaction of uh, supporting this station. And of course, if you can give 15, 20, 25, $50 a month, uh, that would be amazing. And we would just love you so much for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can do so by calling 212-209-2950. And again, that's 212-209-2950. 
or go online to give the number two wbai.org that's give numeral two wbai.org and i just would like to remind our listeners that the news that we provide here on this station is unique um you can you know, go through the other radio stations, go through mainstream media and listen to their newsreels, um, you know, whether it's Palestine or homelessness in the city um, or any other issue. The way that we report on it is the unique lens, often from the ground, you know, often from the left, um, but uncensored and, and not ruled by private interests. And the way that we're able to do that is, uh, you know, by being sponsored by you. So uh, if you haven't given in a while or you've never given, and especially if you want to give, but you've just been too lazy to do it, now is the time. So please, whether you can become a WBAI buddy in the name of the independent for $10 a month or give what you can, call or go online and do so. That's at 212-209-2950, or go online to give number two wbai.org and you know here at the independent we we've been publishing here in new york for 24 years now and we've been doing that that same kind of uh from the bottom up grassroots uh, journalism uh you know that you, you see on wbai it's certainly what we've tried to bring into this uh uh time uh slot on wbai uh really engaged uh, local news and, and public affairs, talking to people who are making a difference on the ground, fighting for a more a just city. You heard uh, from uh, people at Queens College and CUNY that are fighting for uh, higher education that can serve all the people of the city, especially immigrants, working class, uh, poor people. CUNY's uh, the students, their average, their families uh, on the whole make very little money, and, and CUNY makes it possible for them to get a higher education. We're giving their voices, and we're going to hear in a couple of minutes from uh, Savitri D. of the Earth Church, which is doing incredible work uh, to assist migrants. Um, but all these voices are possible because you support this station, and, and you uh, give uh, in the name of the Independent News Hour. One more time, 212-209-2950, 212 2950 or give number to wbai.org. Alrighty, so we're going to move on to our final segment here. Uh, and as I was saying, uh, here at the Independent, we've been following uh, the, the whole migrant uh, influx or migrant crisis, if you will, uh, for the last year and a half. Of course, Amba, you've done a lot of re- great reporting on this. And uh, yeah. another organization that we followed very closely over the years is Reverend Billy and the um, Stop Shopping Choir. They've done a lot of environmental uh, uh, work. Uh, it's so impressive. And they now have a, a storefront uh, church in the East Village on uh, 3rd Street and Avenue C. They've been performing from there over the last year and a half or so on Sunday afternoons and evenings. But recently, as the temperatures plummeted here in New York, they opened their doors to hundreds of migrants, many of whom been stranded outside St. Bridget's Church in uh, the East Village where the city sends them to uh, get re-ticketed to apply to for spaces in the city's shelters. So you had all these uh, stranded migrants stuck out in the rain and the cold um, on 7th Street and Avenue B, and the Earth Church opened its doors and created a welcoming center and has been doing uh, so many amazing things along with other activists in the East Village who've also mobilized to help the uh, migrants uh, who are in their community. 
Uh, Savitri D. from the Earth Church, welcome to WBAI. Thank you, John. Thank you, Amba. Good to see you. Um, thank you, Amba, for all that reporting on Gaza. You're welcome. Thanks. Right. So can you, uh, uh, Savitri, just for starters, uh, just describe a little bit more how the Earth Church became a migrant welcoming center? Um, yeah, well, we noticed in the East Village this line of people outside St. Bridget's. Of course, we were reading about it as well. This is a ticketing center and a re-ticketing center for people to get shelter. Um, you know, the approximately 200,000 migrants who've come into New York City in the last 18 months, probably far more than that. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of these people have never experienced cold weather in in force, you know, so they're in line out there and it's bad enough in good weather. Um, but then the, the temperature started to drop and it just seemed inhumane in every way. And um, a group of uh, local East Village residents sort of put their heads together and with us and, and we realized we could just use the Earth Church as a warming center. I mean, it's it's a Band-Aid on an elephant's ass, if you know what I mean. It's it's not, you know, it's very tiny um, <laughs> effort in a way when you look at the, the, the crisis as a whole. But um, it is kind of a, a, a wonderful um, opportunity to be in community with migrants and really be with them during the day and and talk with them and sit with them and and they are keeping warm and there's some distribution there and um it's just been a remarkable kind of upwelling of of good energy and and efforts from a lot of people many of whom are not activists many of whom just saw a need and are trying to fill it and of course new yorkers are very skillful competent humans in general and and the migrants are also skillful competent humans right who've come a long way and have a lot of um fortitude so it's it's been a really moving and inspiring few weeks there at Earth Church, um, English classes and art therapy and peanut butter and jelly and coffee and lots of prayers and um, the, the music is starting to grow a little bit. Um, but I, you know, I think it illustrates really uh, the, the depth of the crisis. Um, across the world really and and it's it's prefigurative in the sense that like we're going to see more and more of this not less and less of this and it's a failure of our institutions at every level at every level um right. what's happening in new york city you know from the federal government all the way down to you know the local administration and we see that and and either they're corrupt uh incompetent or they actually don't want to they don't want to help. It's one of them, you know, but these people are being weaponized by Eric Adams and his administration. They are being weaponized. It, they are letting it fall apart, essentially, in order uh, so that the feds will come in and offer money or it's very hard to read, you know, what right. they're doing because the incompetence just seems it, it seems unbelievable that they would uh, be failing at this level unless it was on purpose. Yeah, the situation with the 36 day, um, 30 and 60 day you know uh uh what's i'm so sorry evictions from the shelters right is on questionable legal bounds and is leaving people you know i my grand my godmom lives right across the street from the st bridget's and so i was watching people on those coldest days um yeah. you know in the cold um uh out there and you know uh it's true that it's their first winter but uh i think 
you know, I encourage anybody to look into what's going on with those evictions. And so what you guys have done, though, is also a part of a sort of prefiguration because there is a lot of like structured mutual aid being built around this, you know, sort of manufactured crisis. And John has explained to me that what you've done is already, even though it's not been long, gaining structure. So tell us more about like the specific things that you can provide or that you're looking for or what's been going on sort of. Sure. Yeah. And I definitely would love to just elevate that mutual aid that's going on in every borough of the city and has been really for years. This is not invented in any way by the work we're doing. This is we're we're on the shoulders of decades of mutual aid around immigration in this city. Um, La Mirada is doing great work up in the Bronx and you know, the immigration coalition, just a lot of people working hard and many of these people with full-time jobs themselves just, you know, up all night working on it. So, um, what we're doing at the Earth Church is like, it's a, it's a, it's an organizing center and a warming center. So, um, there's distribution being organized from there. There's limited, uh, distribution of coats and shoes, um, and hats and gloves, bare necessities, um, some, um, hygienic materials there. Um, a lot of the distribution takes place in Tompkins Square Park from the Earth Church. So people are going to Tompkins Square and um, distributing goods there. Evie Loves at the Sixth Street Community Center is making meals three days a week, um, doing amazing work, making just like beautiful food for like two fifty a plate, you know, while the city is pay- paying these contractors, you know, 10 times that much for terrible food. Um, so... Uh, you know, we have like 150 volunteers that just emerged over the last 10 days. They're in 12 working groups. Some of it is around food. Some of it is around um, helping people find their way to shelter. Some of it is, um, you, you know, uh, language and translation, pointing people to uh, information around the asylum process, because, of course, you only have a year to, um, to file for asylum. And and that's sort of lost on some people. And I think that the, then it's suddenly too late. A year goes by very quickly in New York City. Um, we're not offering um, legal aid ourselves, but trying to point people in those directions. Um, there is a, a diminishment of um, immigration attorneys in New York City. That's largely due just to burnout, I think. It's like down like 30% from where it was a few years ago. And it was already too few. You know, there's there's 3 million people in immigration court. There's a backlog of 3 million people in immigration court right now. Just wrap your head around that for a second. Um, but the Earth Church and, and is like what it's becoming is a is a is is an organizing center for immigration um, advocacy in that area and distribution. Right. And can you talk about uh, how you sort of see the this work you're doing as a reflection of the values of the Earth Church in terms of uh, uh, your conception of borders and and, and any other values that you see um, that you're, you're able to sort of actualize in this moment? Well, sure. I mean, immigration uh, crises like this are, 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 they don't fall from the sky. They're, they're not miraculous. They're the, they're the result of decades of economic and and uh, military procedure, essentially, by our government and, and other Western European governments, colonization, essentially. Um, we have created the conditions that make it inevitable that people will migrate. Um, and some of that is climate-driven, of course. Um, tremendous drought across the Southern Hemisphere in South America, 
in the Sahel, in the Horn of Africa. I mean, natural disasters, too, too many to even count at this point. Um, and of course, the conflict arising around water issues and, and, uh, and scarcity. And, and these are, are things that imposed by our economic, um, policies and, and our, uh, our primacy, you know, our chauvinism as, as Western Europeans and, and, um, so-called first world nations, right? Um, how does that fit in with the, the ethos of the Earth Church? I mean, you know, we are the stop shopping choir. We have been resisting consumerism and militarism, you know, and, and the, these pillars of, of colonization, uh, you know, for 20 some years. And of course, right now we see it so, uh, vividly in front of us. You know, who gets to be safe? Who gets to be safe? And we know the answer, right? You know, I get to be safe. And then I'm, 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 I'm standing in a room with, you know, a hundred men from 10 different countries in Africa. They don't get to be safe, you know, and, and they're not safe here. You know, so I, I mean, for me, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's not a surprise that we're here, right? At this moment in, 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 in the United States of America. It's, 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 it's an inevitability that we're here. But I, I, I do think that communities are, are rising to it. They are understanding their own resiliency, their own agency, their own power. And I'm not saying that communities should do the work of the government. I mean, there's a, there's a danger here, right? That, that people and communities step in and do this work and the government just even more washes its hand of, hands of the whole thing. You know, we must continue sort of revolutionary, uh, pressure on, on those governments to change how they work or disappear altogether. So either we, we, we really need to ask ourselves hard questions about, about our, our radicalism right now. You know, like, are we actually going to make the, the world different on our own? Or are we going to continue to pressure right, politicians? Right. They seem utterly unable to meet the moment. They right. don't want to. Yeah. And we, uh, we're we're going to have to go here in 15 seconds, but real quick, is is there a, a place you want to direct people to find out more information if they want to get involved sure. or help? Yeah, there's a, you, you can access all the the onboarding of volunteers at revbilly.com, um, East Village Neighbors Who Care on Instagram. Um, and please, you know, if you have time and energy to contribute, um, join us, you know, and, and come to Earth Church. Every Sunday at 5, um, you can also get involved from there. Okay. All right. Savachi D. from the Earth Church uh, and the Earth Church Migrant Welcoming Center uh, in uh, East Village, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI this evening. Uh, that wraps up our show. Uh, we'll be off next week while we finish our, our next print edition. We'll be back on the air on WBAI in two weeks uh, from this evening. Uh, and want to thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson, and also our field correspondent, Lane Dibbler. Amba, what's our outgoing song tonight? We're hearing Change Without Us by our very own friends with Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Choir. But they